Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, and me, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker. Our guest today is Jacqueline Voltman. Jacqueline Voltman's fiction has appeared in Hunger Mountain, Permafrost, The Literary Review, Smoke Long Quarterly, Third Coast, and other journals. A graduate of the MFA program at Bowling Green State University, she is currently Associate Professor of English at Mercer County Community College. She has lived in New Jersey most of her life and resides in a small town surrounded by nature, which she explores with her husband, daughter, and dog. Girl Country is her first book. Welcome, Jackie. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we are pleased that you were able to join us. So so you say on your website that in previous jobs, you've done a lot of different things from cleaning churches to proofreading greeting cards. How did those varied experiences prepare you for becoming a writer or perhaps influence your writing? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, you know, most of the jobs I had prior to going to grad school and starting to teach really didn't have anything, you know, directly to do with writing or or even really anything creative. Um, But I think, you know, if you're a writer, pretty much anything you do, um, even if it's a totally off the wall job that has nothing to do with with writing or the arts um, can serve as inspiration. And so, you know, and especially I think sometimes those those jobs that don't require that much brain power, like like cleaning, you know, cleaning, you can let your imagination kind of run wild while you're doing those jobs. Um, and I think just, um, you know, getting experience outside of uh, academia and you know, outside of that world can can help because you meet different people and kind of talk to people from all walks of life and that kind of thing. So I think in that way, it, it probably, um, you know, inspired me in some way. In the title story, Girl Country, and the second story, Once Bound for Earth, you take us into a pretty bleak near future world of multiple ecological and economic crises. The first features a farmer who saves a girl from a life of being literally milked for a cancer cure for the rich who then saves him. And the other stars a bus driver who ferries a load of passengers to safety, people society forgot, from possible nuclear fallout. So what do you hang on to that keeps you hopeful for the future? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. I thought I was going like in a different direction. Like, why do you write about all these end of the world type of stories? But um, what what keeps me hopeful? Um, Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I think I I feel like I'm a pretty hopeful person overall. I think even my bleakest stories, there seems there's there's sort of a, a hopefully a light, you know, a light there, a light at the end of the tunnel or some kind of light. Um, I I think, you know, there's there's always, um, you know, beauty even in in the and, and even magic and sort of miraculous things, even in the sort of darkest um places and and um you know so i think you know even just nature walking around looking looking at the sky looking at the trees you know uh gives me hope the sort of regeneration of the earth the cycles you know things die but then they come back um you know and even just 
my own family, children, seeing that, you know, the, the younger generation, um, you know, cares about things. My daughter's in like an environmental club at school and they're really, you know, gung-ho about saving the earth and and that kind of thing. So so those sort of things give me hope, I guess. Some of the stories in Girl Country also feature the fantastic, like the one about a woman who bears a series of children who are from another time, and another about an obelisk that just drops into a small town and people disappear into it. Can you tell us what inspires your work or when or how do you know that a really unique idea is worth pursuing? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I feel like the the simplest answer um, is that, you know, in terms of ideas worth pursuing, maybe this is a bad quality, but I, any kind of wacky off the wall idea that I have, I feel is worth pursuing. I kind of just write them all down and I'm like, I want to go with that. I don't care if it's like weird or wacky or maybe it won't come to anything. But um, I think a lot of writers or artists have, I mean, maybe it's an almost an ego thing. Maybe this is a flaw, but it's like, I think my ideas are great. So I'm going to go with them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was really inspired when I first started writing fiction because I, I, I started as a poet or I thought I was a poet for a very long time when I was young, you know, until the, my last year of undergrad. And then I started writing fiction. And when I fell in love with fiction, I fell in love with those types of stories, the fantastical and not, not really straight up fantasy, no, nothing sort of in that hard genre, um, but but story, magical realism. Um, and stories that used, you know, fantastic elements to sort of... Um, reveal something about the the real world or the world that we live in um, to serve as kind of metaphors for that. And so, you know, I fell in love with that type of style and that's kind of, you know, how I started writing and just how I kind of continued because um, to me, straight, writing straight realism, I feel like I was never very good at it, <laughs> but also I'm not that interested in it. You know, I think um, magic is all around us, you know, in very, sometimes very subtle ways, um, and sometimes not so subtle, but, um, I like, I like to kind of exaggerate, um, certain things and, and use them as metaphors for, for, you know, real life. So. And that kind of leads us into the next question, that process of exploration, sort of pushing the the envelope on, on a story. Uh, maybe the most arresting title in this collection is The Mermaid and the Pornographer. So <laughs> what was it that, ins what, what inspired that story? And what is it that you're hoping readers see in it? What kind of transformation do you see? So <laughs> that's a kind of funny one. Um, it's the one I'm probably most embarrassed about when like, uh, you know, my daughter's looking at my table of contents. I'm like, oh God, don't, don't ask me about that. Okay. Um, but this, this was my oldest story, um, that made its way into this book. It, I think it was written in like 2008, 2009 when I was in grad school. So, you know, three of the stories from grad school ended up in the book and that's one of them. And it, the, the inspiration is, um, very simple and silly. Uh, my then boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, had said to me, I think I may got I got out of the shower and my hair was kind of curly or something. He was like, it's like mermaid porn or something. He just said, I don't know. I don't because my hair, you know, mermaid hair is like that. And and I was like, 
this is going back to, I think all, all, all my ideas are great or all, anything I hear from other people, I'm going to write it down. Hey, that sparks an idea in me. Let me write it down and I'm going to make it into something. And so I wrote it down. I'm like, I'm going to write a story about a pornographer who finds a mermaid and um, tries to use her, you know? Um, so I did. So I wrote it and it, it, it changed a little bit over the years. I initially did publish it back when I, when I wrote it in grad school in, um, a small journal called the Berkeley Fiction Review, which I think is still running. Um, but after that, when I was putting the book together and I was revising the story, I kind of, I, I, I didn't change that much about it, but I, I did tweak some things because I felt like we were in a different moment. Like my initial story, I think was a little more um, almost too too sympathetic to the pornographer in a way. And so my my revisions you know, for the book when I was revising it, I felt like I wanted to be at least a little bit harder on him. I mean, I think it's still pretty sympathetic to his situation and it's, it's in, you know, close third in his, in his point of view. But um, I wanted to, I wanted at least some of the characters to push back on him and like say, Hey, you better do the right fucking thing. Like you better, you know, don't exploit this person anymore. I think his, his housekeeper or something says something like that to him. And um, by the end, I think he kind of realizes his his wrongs. Um, and again, it's still pretty probably maybe too sympathetic to him, but it felt like this was like a in a way like a me too type of story. Like the mermaid is is this person who's being um, exploited by this, you know, director of sorts. Um, so anyway, I don't know. I feel like I might have gone off on a tangent. I'm not sure if I answered the question there, but. You did. You did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you've talked a little bit about how you fell in love with fiction, how you came to that sort of moving away from poetry. Who are some of the writers that have influenced you and in your writing the most or that you admire greatly? So um, thinking back to like when I really decided, I, I think I want to go with writing fiction versus poetry, um, you know, as my kind of major when I went to my MFA, Anthony Doerr's first collection of short stories, um, which was called The Shell Collector, was a huge inspiration to me. And, you know, at the time he wasn't like super famous yet. You know, now he's incredibly famous with all the light we cannot see and um, all of his other famous books. But that his book of short stories, the just the way I, I think what what drew me to, to him was just the very deep um, compassion or empathy that he has for his characters um and so there's sort of a subtle magic in his as well and so he was a big inspiration and then um amy bender uh was another one again because of the fantastical elements and karen russell you know with the magical realism um you know other than them I, tony morrison obviously is a huge huge name and such a huge inspiration to me and so many others um I love I love a lot of old stuff too, Virginia Woolf and, and James Joyce and like all the Faulkner and all those modernists and stuff. But but sort of the more recent ones, I think, were Toni Morrison, Karen Russell, Anthony Doerr. Well, like Doerr, uh, a lot of your work is uh, features some heartbreaking stories about people who survive. And in when the tree grows this high, 
the a young couple finally find their way to love uh, and then lose it in war and in the preservation of lost objects at sea which is a novel title two people who experience the same trauma differently help each other heal and so what do you think helps ordinary people become survivors and and what brings you to observe that and share that in your work yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think um, I'm thinking of like Anthony Doerr's short story called The Caretaker, which was from his first collection. And I just love the way that the two characters, the the um, uh, Joseph and the young woman that he meets kind of kind of save each other, or help each other. And so I think that some of it, some of the stories in here, um, maybe even especially the the title story, Girl Country, you know, we have characters who are who are struggling that in some way, maybe even without meaning to um, help each other or save each other. So there's that element of it. But I think also maybe it's it's also like an internal journey um, of of healing. So like in the story, Once Bound for Earth with um, Janet, she kind of goes, you know, there's this there's this external journey that's happening where she's trying to kind of like save these kids from the end of the world but there's also like an internal kind of healing journey that's going on where she's thinking about her son and you know the tragedy that happened to him and how she kind of held herself accountable and blamed herself but by the end kind of comes to a realization that you know she she did all she could and she tried as hard as she could and you know she loved him and and all of that. And so there's a sort of an internal healing journey alongside the external journeys that they're undergoing. In addition to your own writing, you edit a literary magazine, Kelsey Review. So what do you look for in other people's writing as an editor? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, the the magazine I edit, it's, it's like a very local uh, magazine where we take um, submissions from people who live in Mercer County, New Jersey. Um, and we don't get, you know, a huge amount of submissions, but the the submissions, like what I look for when I'm, when I'm editing, I think it's kind of what I'm looking for as a reader in general. You know, I want obviously sort of the basics craft stuff there, but I, I like stories that move me. I mean, I think that's really the first thing. If it moves me, then then um, even if there are some technical things wrong with it, I'll probably just work with them to to try to publish it. Um, so compassion, empathy for the characters, allowing the reader to feel that. Um, and, you know, I, I do look for things that are a little bit different. You know, I think, uh, and this probably all editors do this, but, you know, if you read the same type of story over and over again, you know, it gets very boring. And so finding things that are a little, maybe a little bit experimental, nothing, you know, off the wall, just experimenting for experimentation's sake, but just things that are a little bit, a little bit different, a little bit fresh um, in terms of perspective, or just even in terms of story and who you're writing about. I think I, I, that's what I look for. And you also work with younger writers. How do you recognize talent and help people find or develop their voices? Yeah, I mean, so I work with, I, I teach at a community college and I mostly teach um, composition. So it's it's essay writing. It's not really uh, creative writing, but I do work with the um, creative writing club there. And so I do get to kind of dip into that world a little bit and, and help out those writers as well. Um, 
I think one of the things that I try to do, whether it's for, comp you know, writing in composition or writing creatively is, you know, encourage students to um, follow their, their uniqueness rather than necessarily always being so concerned with the rules. And I think in, um, both composition and creative writing, you have students who sometimes just out of sort of a fear think that they have to like follow certain rules. And um, it's like, no, it's it's okay. I mean, yes, we do need the basics. We need to know the basics, but you know, everyone's voice is different and, you know, finding, figuring out what that is, first of all, you gotta figure it out. And then kind of following that through is I think the way to the way to kind of find yourself as a writer. And you're busy with family and prep and uh, and marking and stuff right now. But do you find time to, are you finding time to write anything new right now? Here and there. Yeah, I, I, I haven't been as good at keeping up with my writing schedule lately. So when I was, when I was finishing the book, you know, before even it was public, you know, before it was picked up by Dezank, um, it was, it was my project and I wanted to finish it. And so I was highly motivated to like, get up super early every single day and write and sit down. And, and it worked out really well that I wrote a lot of stories um, in a short period of time. And I was really productive and really happy and really creative. And then once the book got picked up and then we were working on the edits that I, you know, was motivated by that and we were doing that. And then once it was published, it was like, oh gosh, now, now where do I go? What do I do? And so some of that motivation to, you know, get up early and, and get the writing done kind of fell off. And so I haven't been doing as much. Um, but in a way it's nice because it feels like it's kind of opened up some space to do other things. So I've been writing a little bit of poetry, um, which I hadn't done in a, in a really long time. Um, and I feel like poetry is kind of like my first love, you know, and, and um, the way it feels like to me is like, the fiction is who I married, you know, so I'm married to fiction, but, but poetry is my first love. I'll always look fondly at poetry. So it's nice to like go back to it a little bit. Um, and so I'm doing a little bit of that. And then I have a novel that I'm, I'm hoping to write, but I haven't really sat down to start it yet, but I'm writing down a lot of notes. I have a notebook that I just kind of, am always jotting down notes and thoughts in, um, and lots of just random things like screenplay ideas. And I've never written a screenplay before, but it would be fun, right? So I'm always jotting down new ideas. Hopefully I'll be able to sit down and actually start um, a new project soon. That all sounds like a wonderful creative fallow period. So yeah, everybody needs a little of that, right? Mm -hmm. So would you like to read a little bit of Girl Country for our audience? Sure. Um, trying to think. I think I would like to read... Maybe I'll read the beginning of a love letter from very far away about the obelisks. A love letter from very far away. The first obelisk appeared in a cornfield outside our town of Bowling Green, Ohio, just a few years after we'd survived the latest pandemic, right when we thought things were returning to normal. It probably wasn't the right word for the structure, obelisk, but that's how the first article referred to it and the name stuck. It was 30 feet tall and pretty wide, a sideways trapezoid stuck into the earth by one of its sharp corners. The surface was smooth black like obsidian, though the scientist who tested it said that's not what it was. 
They ultimately admitted rather sheepishly they couldn't tell what it was. It started out as a local wonder. News stations referred to it as, referred to it as an object of mysterious origin or OMO. Alien enthusiasts from neighboring counties came by the dozen and made comparisons to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Parents took their children to gaze and wonder and try to climb the thing with no luck. Our own son was 17 at the time, teetering on the edge of adulthood, but even we took him once. He stood there, disinterested, staring instead at his phone, and you and I, we simply regarded our reflections in the glassy black of the trapezoid surface, wondering what would happen to us when he eventually left the nest. What would we have to hold us together? Soon, the structures popped up in other places across the country. First, another cornfield, this one in Iowa, then a farm in upstate New York, beside Lake Pontchartrain in Louisiana, on a mountaintop in Colorado, in the middle of the Arizona desert, right along the border in New Mexico, in an alleyway in Oakland, cracking concrete, and finally in the Badlands, where no one noticed for a while. The first obelisk arrived on the spring equinox. By the time we realized they were popping up all over the country, the politicians were rabid. They assumed it was an act of aggression from another country. They speculated that the material might emit some kind of dangerous energy. Local officials roped off the structures with police tape, a large yellow square of at least 100 yards on each side. It reminded me of those years back when the pandemic hit and the playgrounds were closed off with caution tape, as if they were crime scenes. Our son was nine then, at an age when he still sometimes asked to go to the playground, was, but was beginning to prefer video games. When the playgrounds closed, he happily resigned himself to pre-teenagehood, and I, of course, mourned. While new buds shivered in the wind, politicians argued about who sent the obelisks and why, throwing accusations like cherry bombs. By summer, though, these structures had been spotted in almost every country ac across the world, dotting the globe like jagged black jewels. Some of those on the far right took a different angle. They were no longer a threat, but a gift from God. They argued that America had received more of these blessings than any other country because America was the most blessed country on earth. They urged local officials to remove the yellow tape and encouraged all Christians to flock to the rocks. Flock to the rock even became a national catchphrase for a while. Some began setting up camp there, the most devout followers making fervent attempts to chip away at the obelisks, hoping to collect fragments like the relics of saints. The structures, though, could not be broken, not even a sliver. That in itself should have proven these things were alien in origin. Human-made things are always so fragile, so quick to fall apart. I think I'll end there. Jacqueline Volkman, thank you very much for joining us today and sharing your new book, Girl Country, with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.